may be seated. Well, today we continue our study of the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews is steeped with Old Testament uh, citations and allusions. Uh, there are over 30 passages of the Old Testament that are directly quoted in the book of Hebrews and, and many more uh, allusions or references to passages from the Old Testament that are quoted in the book of Hebrews. In fact, in, in chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, just that ending portion of chapter 1, there are seven distinct Old Testament passages that are directly cited or quoted in, in the book of Hebrews here. Uh, and, and all of them build upon one statement. They all build upon the statement that's been made in verse 4 of Hebrews. In verse 4 of Hebrews, it speaks of Jesus and how he's become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It's making the point that Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, now that doesn't seem like much to us sometimes if we have a faulty view of angels as much of uh, the modern church does. Uh, we think of angels and, and what do we think of? Well, I, I think of, you know, oh, look at those little kids that are behaving so nicely. They're so sweet. They're so cute. They're just a bunch of angels, aren't they? Or perhaps we think on a day like today where the snow's falling, some of you kids maybe later on today will go outside and lay down in the snow and, and take your arms like this and do the same with your legs. I can't do that while I'm standing up. I'll fall down. But you get the picture, right? And we'll make, what are they? Snow angels, right? And it's just these, these pretty imprintations in, in, into the uh, snow of, of what we see in angel. We think of angels as kind of sweet and as and as as you know gentle when we look at the bible though we see that this is not the case angels are fearful beings they are powerful beings they are great beings and yet jesus is greater yet follow along now as i read from hebrews 1 verses 5 through 14, and we'll see how indeed Jesus is greater yet than the angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he said, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his Ministers a flame of fire, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a, a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
Are they not all ministering spirits set out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its reminder that Christ Jesus is indeed greater yet than even the angels, greater than all things. May we see him as such this morning through your word. Give our eyes sight to see. Give our ears the ability to hear your truth. And may you, by the power of your spirit working in us, make your word effectual in our hearts, bringing about worship and praise that we might honor and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is is in Luke 24. It's after Jesus has died and he's risen from the dead and there are a group of disciples that are on the road to Emmaus, which is a a town, Um, and they're headed to Emmaus and, and they're met along the way by this stranger that they don't recognize. It turns out that this stranger is not a stranger at all. It is actually the resurrected Christ, but they don't realize this. Their, their eyes are, are blinded to this fact at this point. And so they don't realize, and they're talking to this, this stranger, and, and they ask him, had you heard about the things that happened? No, and they're going back and forth. But, but finally what happens is, is they are saddened by the fact that Jesus had, had died. And he says to them, in essence, don't you realize that the Christ had to die? And, and we find in Luke 24, 27, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, he, he opened up the Old Testament to them. And he said, you see, this points to the Christ. This points to me, even though they don't know exactly who he is at that point. And, and I feel like today as we're opening up this passage of Hebrews, we're, we're doing much the same thing. We're looking at, at seven different passages from the Old Testament. And we're seeing how each one of them pointed to Jesus. They describe Jesus. They exalt Jesus. They prepared the way for Jesus They glorify Jesus. The first one's right there in verse 5. It says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's a direct quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, this might cause us some difficulty if we're thinking about you know the the lord god has begotten christ jesus we understand that that but but when did he actually say that what was that day he says today i have said this what was that day that he did that because because wasn't it really always the case wasn't it always the case that jesus was the son of god isn't he eternally the son of god isn't that what we claim well yes it is you know god so loved the world we read John 3.16 that he sent his only begotten son. And then later on, we see when Jesus was baptized, uh, a voice spoke down from the heavens. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. 
And then later on the Mount of Transfiguration, again, this same voice of God. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. You see, He was the Son of God from all of eternity. So what is meant by this phrase, He is the begotten Son of God, and, and what day was it that he, he said, You have become my begotten Son? Well, well this phrase, begotten, can hold the meaning of of being made manifest. So I think that's what it's saying here. It's saying that you have been made manifest as the Son of God, that the evidence has been shown, it has been put on display that you are the Son of God. And I I say that on the basis of a couple different passages. One is in Acts 13, verses 29 and following. It says, When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, Acts seems to connect the raising of Jesus with the begottenness of his sonship. And so I think what we're saying is it's, it's the, the manifestation that he is indeed, the declaration. We could say in Romans 1 4, it was declared, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead. You see, the resurrection from the dead is a very important thing. It's important because without it, Jesus is not who he claimed to be. If Jesus died and stayed dead, then we are wasting our time here. This is is nonsense. If Jesus died and, and stayed dead, we should have all just slept in this morning. Some people would say, well, but, but aren't we better off coming to church and, and just being together? But that's not what the Apostle Paul said. He said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then we are all people most to be pitied. You see, because we are still lost in our sins. And we're foolishly following one who claimed to be God who was nothing but a liar. And so it is that... Jesus, as the very Son of God, was made manifest when he did indeed rise from the dead. We can see in that act that he was who he claimed to be, the very Son of God. It's a second passage right here in verse 5. Right after he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He says, or again, I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. Again, this idea of sonship of Jesus. It's a phrase, this one was quoted out of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Where it says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Primarily, directly, God is speaking about Solomon at that point. You see, because there's this talk of who will build a temple. David wanted to build a temple for God, but God said, no, you won't. But, but your son will build a temple for me and said and indeed Solomon did build the temple but there were promises that came along with this and God said that that he will be my son and his throne will last forever and ever and you see that 
There's a sense in which Solomon fulfilled the promise through the building of the temple, but there's a greater sense in which this promise was fulfilled in Christ Jesus, for he built the temple that lasts forever. Remember what he said, if you tear down this temple, in three days I will rebuild. He was talking about the temple of his body, and and he dwelled in the temple. God dwelled in the temple in the midst of the people, but now he dwells in us so that we are the very temple of God. And so Jesus has built this temple, and he is the Son of God. Now, we compare that to the angels. The angels were very important, very powerful. They were messengers of God, but they were only messengers. Jesus is the very Son of God. There's a difference between messengers and a son. I could send somebody with a message, and Jesus did come with a message. He came preaching. We, we read earlier today just how he, he said, came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He came with a message indeed, proclaiming these things, but he was more than just a messenger. He was the very son of God who came God in flesh, so that he might die for our sins. There's a difference between messengers and the Son. That difference is made more evident in verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Well, it's very clear there that there's a difference between the Son and the angels, isn't there? If the angels are worshiping him. This is a quote from Psalm 97.7. Now, if you look at Psalm 97.7, you'll find that it doesn't actually say this. So how can it be a quote of that passage, you might ask me? Uh, And Psalm 97.7 says, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. It doesn't say anything about angels worshiping him. But, But you see, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, from which... Uh, the, the author would have been working in Hebrews. It actually has a phrase which is used to, to mean angels. And actually these, these gods, lowercase g, was a phrase that was sometimes used for angels as well. And so we know because this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that that is a correct interpretation of that. And so we understand that he's taking Psalm 97.7 and saying it as it really was meant to be. So he says, Worship him, all you angels. Now, angels know about worship, don't they? What, what was the verse I said earlier today when we first started the service? We talked about how, how the angels the angels gathered there. There was the one angel that spoke to uh, the shepherds. And uh, then what happened after that? Uh, there appeared with that angel a whole multitude of angels worshiping God. And then in Revelation chapter 19, we see a place where John comes comes face to face in this vision with an angel. And, and he says in Revelation 19.10, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. So, so magnificent, so glorious was the angel that that was his response to just fall down. I mean, have you ever seen somebody or something where you've walked up to him and you've just been so overcome with awe, so amazed at their sight, that you just fell to the ground and started worshiping them? I've, I've not had that happen to me. I've seen some pretty awesome things. I've seen people that I thought were really cool. You know, one time I was in a, 
hotel elevator with Evander Holyfield. That was pretty cool. He was the heavyweight champion of the world at the time. He had just had his ear bit off by Mike Tyson. Remember that? It was like two months later. You could see it. It was, ooh, it was gruesome. And this is the heavyweight champion of the world. That was really cool. And I was in the elevator with him. I was not at all tempted to bow down and worship him. And he could have beat me up. You know, pretty bad, right? No temptation at all. But you see, the angels are more powerful than the heavyweight champion of the world. They're more magnificent. They're more glorious. And so John says he fell down. This is John, this is the apostle John. It's toward the end of his life. He's seen Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He saw the transfigured Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's not like he hasn't seen anything. And yet he fell down to worship this angel. And the angel says to him, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. You see, the angel says, don't, don't worship me. Don't worship me. I'm, I'm here with you to wor- worship God. That's what we're here for. We worship God. And God alone, there's none other that should be worshipped. And yet, what do we read here? They are worshipping Jesus. Let all God's angels worship him. Because Jesus is God. You see, the angels know that. They're, they're just worshipping servants. But he is the worshipped son. He is the one who is to be worshipped. God Almighty himself. In verse 7, we read of the angels. He makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. A quote from Psalm 104, verse 4, which says those very words. Uh, F.F. Bruce says about this here. Angels are portrayed as executing the divine decrees with the swiftness of wind and the strength of fire. I like that explanation of this verse. That's how the angels work, with the swiftness of wind, the strength of fire. Eric Alexander puts it this way. He says, God seems to clothe his angels with the power of which wind and fire speak in order to fulfill his purpose. But the key thought here is, once again, they are but servants of God. The Son is in a different category altogether. He's in a different category altogether that we see in verse 8. Of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You see, he is seated on this throne. It's a quote from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Who's seated on a throne but a king, one who reigns? saying you have power, you have authority, you have sovereignty. You are the king. And there's something about kings. I don't know if you've ever noticed. We don't spend a lot of time here in America paying attention to kings. But if you've read through your history books, there's one thing that, that all kings share. You know, there's many distinctives that make them all different. But one thing they all share, their reigns all end. Every king dies and his reign ends but not this king who is the son not this king who is christ jesus he says your throne oh god is forever and ever 
His throne goes on forever. He reigns forever. His kingdom has no end. And it is not the kind of kingdom that we would despise. You know, there's some, some guys that when they get in charge, you know, whether it's a president or whether it's a boss or whether it's anybody who's in authority over us, really, you know, there's certain people that, that are in that position that were like, boy, I wish the day would just come when this person is no longer in this position. I know as we sit here and just say that and you think in your mind, there's not a one of us who can't think of somebody who's like that, whether it's a politician or a boss or, or you know, anybody who's had people in authority above them can think of somebody that they wish wasn't. They say, you know, he's, he's tyrannical, he's a despot, he's all these terrible things, whatever we want to think of for whoever this person is. But you see, wouldn't it be terrible if that, that kind of king ruled forever and ever and ever, but that's not the kind of king that Jesus is. It's wonderful that he reigns forever and ever and ever because he is a king who, who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. What a wonderful thing. We, we, we like that, don't we? We want a king who loves righteousness, who, who hates wickedness, except for the fact that we are wicked. And so now we have a problem, don't we? You know, we don't like to think of ourselves in that way. I'm the good guy, of course. I'm always the good guy. But the reality is, we are wicked. We are wicked beyond our wildest imaginations, beyond our greatest fears. We, We don't even know the half of it, of how wicked we are. In our hearts, in our thoughts, and even in our actions. So we have a problem. We need righteousness to mark our lives instead of this wickedness. We'll come back to that in a minute. But now in verse 10, we see how you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They'll wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed, but you are the same. Your years will have no end. It's a direct quotation from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. And we see there that Jesus is the creator. He is eternal again. He is unchanging. And then finally this passage kind of reaches its crescendo in verse 13 when we read, To which of the angels has he said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's a quotation of Psalm 110, verse 1. We see that the enemies of God will be made a footstool for his feet. It's not a promise he makes to the the angels, the angels who are under authority. It's a promise he makes to Jesus, who is the ultimate authority. Jesus is greater. But not only is Jesus greater, his, his new covenant is greater as well. That's the wonderful thing. That's the wonderful promise that we lay hold of today. And that's the only thing that we can have hope because of. As we are by nature enemies of God. This new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Just as Jesus is superior to the angels. We see that that his enemies will be made his footstools. and, And we rightly could be called his enemies. But he decides not to make us his footstool. 
He shows us his grace. He shows us his mercy. You see, the the day will come when all will bow down to Jesus, but we have the opportunity to bow down to him now because of his grace, his mercy, his goodness. If we trust in him, he will forgive us. He He has offered to wash us clean of our sin. I was talking earlier today just of the the beauty of the snow. You know, this time of year when it's not snowy outside, it's gray and dirty and, and frankly, not too attractive outside. You know, but then we get a fresh snow like today and it's white. It's pure. It's clean. It's beautiful. That's what happens when we trust in Jesus. We, We who are gray and dark and ugly in our sin and in our rebellion are clothed with the garments of salvation we are covered with christ's robes of righteousness and we are saved but we must trust in him for there is no other way we can't through our own deeds through our own works do it. We have to trust in him. And so if you have not trusted in Christ Jesus for salvation, I call on you today. You need to trust in him and in him alone. You need to know that you cannot make yourself clean. You cannot make yourself pure. Only he can do that. And it can only happen as a result of trusting in him. Having already been clothed in the eyes of God with his righteous garments. So trust in him today. If you have trusted in him today, then what, what's this whole message for? What's the point of it? Well, We get that at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, therefore, you know, it's kind of unfortunate that it starts with therefore. There's therefores scattered throughout Hebrews. And they tend to kind of break things up when in reality, you know, what's the question we ask? What's the therefore, therefore? It's because of what just preceded it, right? And so this therefore at the beginning of chapter 2 relates very much to chapter 1. It says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You see, that's what will happen if we don't pay attention to this. If we don't lay hold to it, we will drift away. That's what he's warning us against we need to be careful not to do that have you ever been out on a lake maybe in a pontoon boat you know you're just kind of swimming around and all of a sudden the the pontoon just kind of is further and further and further away from you or maybe you've been in the ocean just playing out in the waves and and you kind of look up and you realize that where you had your chair set up is no longer right in front of you it's way down there what happened i i didn't go down there i just drifted i didn't pay any attention i didn't try to do it it just happened. I didn't even notice it happening. I just, just kind of look up and there I was. And that's a danger in the Christian life. We can drift away from God if we are not paying attention. What you do is two things. If you're in a pontoon on the lake, you drop an anchor. You drop an anchor so that it holds the boat in place. And If you're out on the beach, out in the waves, you look at where... Your chairs are set up, a fixed point that does not move. And you constantly look to see where it is. And as you start to get away from it, you come back. 
readjusting. And that's what we need to do. Christ is our anchor. He is our fixed point. He is the one that we need to lay hold to and have lay hold to us. He is the one we need to constantly be returning to. For he is that anchor. He is that fixed point. Not because he makes us better, not because he makes us happier, but because he makes us holy. Because our sins are forgiven in him and in him alone. That was the message, wasn't it, that the angels gave? The message the angels gave in Matthew one twenty one to Joseph, the angel said, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And in Luke 2, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. That is what we need, a Savior. That's the message of the angels and the message that they've attested to has been proven to be trustworthy because of the resurrection. God has given us signs and wonders. In closing, just this, consider this fact. Uh, I, I was recently down in Detroit. I saw a sign on the highway. It said, Flint, this way, I-75 North. Now, that sign was not Flint itself, but it pointed me toward Flint. And that's what miracles do. That's what signs and wonders do. They're they signs pointing us toward something When Jesus heals lepers, it's pointing us toward the fact that he is the one that though we are unclean, he can make us clean. When he heals the the blind and the deaf, he's pointing us to the fact that he is the one who gives us eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel. When he calms the storms, we're told that, that, that he is the one who has power over all of creation. When he when he casts out demons. We see that he has control not only over the physical world, but over the spiritual world as well. When he feeds 5,000, that points us to the fact that he is the bread of life, the one who nourishes our souls. And when he raises Lazarus from the dead, that is a sign that he is the Lord over life and death, the Lord and giver of life the Lord and giver of new life that we can have in him. And ultimately, as he is risen on the third day, we see that he is the first fruits of resurrection, a resurrection that can be ours too if only we trust in him. God bore witness through these signs. And he has given us gifts, gifts to build up his body. Let us use them for his glory. He's given us signs, He's given us gifts. But he's also given us the table. What a wonderful thing that table is. Through the table, we might have our faith strengthened. For in the table, Christ's death is showed forth. We proclaim his death, we say, until he returns until he returns on that day in glory and power. No longer anything being broken or hurting or sick, but all things made right by him. What a day that will be. We look forward to that day when we will dine with him once more at the wedding feast of the Lamb. But today we partake of this feast Looking forward to that feast, yes, but at the same time, remembering our own sinfulness. Here today, 
remembering the sacrifice that he paid on a cross on Calvary 2,000 years ago. Let us partake of this meal today that we might not drift away from the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. As we come to this table today, know that this is not my table. It's not a Presbyterian table. It is not even Calvary's table. It is the Lord's table. And for all who trust in him for salvation, for all who know that they cannot make themselves right before God, for all who who are lacking so much, but know that Christ makes them right. He bids them to come to this table, to partake of his body and his blood, and have their faith strengthened by that. As, As the hymnist says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And so today I read you these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.